Uh, so if we haven't met, my name is AJ. It's good to be with you this morning. I've been, as Kristen said, I've been attending Westside for a couple years now, uh, and I work as a therapist, and I work at the Dream Center as well. Just to share a little bit about me so you have some understanding of, of who I am and where I've come from. Uh, I've been in Calgary for the last five years. I grew up uh, just outside of Vancouver in a, in a place called Steveston. Uh, for most of my life, I spent a couple years in California for Bible college, and I spent a few years uh, living in Vancouver uh, in the downtown east side on East Hastings before moving out here to take a job at the Calgary Dream Center. Uh, my wife and I both moved here at that point. Uh, we weren't married yet. A couple months later, uh, we got here. And uh, just a little bit about her and I, what keeps us busy is, uh, is work, of course, but we also just enjoy drinking coffee with friends, uh, camping. We have a 1976 uh, bowler that we take out camping as much as we can, uh, as well as we have a golden retriever named Penny, uh, who keeps us quite busy. If you like, I can show you a video after of her running around with a chef's knife. Uh, no one got hurt, uh, including her, so it's, it's all good. Um, my wife also works at the Calgary Dream Center. She is our manager of social enterprise. Uh, so we have a thrift store in Inglewood called Change is Good. Uh, if you like thrifting or the idea of thrifting, but you don't want to have to sort through all the clothes to find the good stuff, you can go there because she does all of that for you. So it's a higher end, kind of all the good brands and things like that there. So that's in Inglewood, and it's called Change is Good. So I'm excited to continue this morning in our study through the book of Acts. We have a lot of ground to cover as we're going to make our way from chapter 21 all the way through chapter 27. I'm not going to read it all because that would be the end of the service uh, this morning. So let's start off by joining me in prayer. Father, present to us this morning just as you are in heaven. Show us your ways. Help us to become aware of, of you with us. Help us to see you this morning, to hear you, and to know you. Show us your ways. Amen. This is a photo of a gentleman by the name of Philip Zimbardo. Philip Zimbardo was a researcher at Stanford University who decided to conduct an experiment in the 1970s. He conducted an experiment designed to explore how people's behavior and attitudes are affected when they're placed in positions of authority and power. The experiment simulated a prison environment in the basement of Stanford. He recruited students to participate, and each student was randomly assigned to the role of prisoner or guard. The guards were given uniforms and instructed to maintain order within the prison, while the prisoners were subjected to the authority of the guards. The experiment was meant to last for two weeks. However, it got cut short six days into the experiment because it had become so intense and potentially harmful psychologically and physically to the students involved. The students playing the guards began to take their roles very seriously, even adopting harsh and controlling behaviors. They began to use psychological manipulation humiliation, and mild forms of punishment to exert their authority over the students playing the prisoners. It's likely that Philip Zimbardo would have let it go on had a not another psychologist come along and seen what was going on and encouraged him to stop. 
And so he stopped on the, just the sixth day. This study reveals to us how easily individuals can slip into power and control, leading to manipulation, cruelty, and the erosion of ethical boundaries. People who are given authority over others rapidly transform into abusers and oppressors. We see this throughout history. And it shouldn't surprise us then when we see the present day of abuse within, within the prison and the policing systems, especially when those systems themselves were rooted in coercive forms of power and control. The biblical narrative contains within it stories that mirror the very dynamics that the Stanford Prison Experiment exposed. And we see this all the way at the very beginning in Genesis. Humanity was created in this space of mutuality and collaboration, but they chose a different way. In the garden, they had everything they needed. All of their needs were met, but instead they chose the way of self-supremacy and self-sufficiency, longing for this illusion to be like God, chasing a mirage of accumulation and dominance. In this pursuit, humanity drifted away from the very thing that they wanted. They wanted to be like God, and in this pursuit, they became less like God. For even God, as Trinity, though self-sufficient, is a community of mutual self-giving and receiving, one devoid of power over the other. And this theme pervades scripture of God calling a people back to the way of self-giving love, of mutuality, of collaboration and cooperation, but people continue to give themselves over to the way of coercive power and control, which is always marked with violence. And the early church in Acts continues this pattern. As the formation of the church, they were a community of cooperation and care for all. It was a stark contrast to the ways of the systems that they lived in. And indeed, it's still a contrast to the systems we exist in today. And as we read on, the church leaders are wrestling with the allure of the way of power, of self-interest, personal security, and comfort, instead of the way revealed in Jesus. They're navigating what it looks like to move from one way into the ways of Jesus. And so they're, they're meeting together, and they're making decisions, and they're making mistakes, and they're trying to figure it all out together. And so we see this throughout Acts. We also see how the religious and the political systems of those days, root, were, and they were rooted in, in this power, respond to this alternative way of living, how they respond to this way of Jesus as lived out by the early followers. Consider the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 11. It's a tale of economic greed leading to deception and manipulation within the community. A stark reminder of how the pursuit of accumulation distorts our moral compasses, pushes us to manipulate and control for personal advantage. Or later on in chapter 5, in 17 through 42, we see the religious leaders are fueled by jealousy and fear, and so they turn to violence against the apostles, driven by their need to preserve their power and influence. And in Acts 19, 23 through 41, Demetrius, a silversmith, incites a riot due to economic concerns, as we would have learned about last week with Michaela. Demetrius was concerned that the way which is what they called Christians at that time, would threaten his livelihood. And then just before where we find ourselves this morning, at the beginning of Acts 21, Paul is accused of welcoming in a Gentile into the temple. This, in doing so, and in, in this welcoming and being accused of this, he's, uh, Nikola last week talked about how Acts in, its, in and of itself is an embodiment 
of Isaiah 56. It is a declaration that God's house would be a house of prayer for all nations. And so when Paul is accused of doing this, it riles people up. It challenges the dogmatic certitude of the religious leaders, and it unsettles what was comfortable for them. And so we see this all through the book of Acts. The political and the religious leaders have embraced one way, and the followers of Jesus are resisting with another way. And as we explore these themes and these narratives, we need to remember that we're not mere readers and observers, but we're participants in this story, and we need to approach it with humility because we're all susceptible to the allure of power and wealth. But what we see throughout Scripture is an alternative way, a way that is marked by self-giving love instead of coercion and violence. This way consistently faces resistance. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the call of both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The way that God calls us, the alternative way that Scripture calls us to, and that we see throughout Acts, doesn't align well with things that are rooted in power and dominance. These verses are a beautiful picture, actually, of what happens through these last several chapters this morning as Paul faces resistance from Jews and Gentiles alike. And Acts offers us this beacon of hope, pointing us towards a pursuit of wholeness that can only be found with Jesus at the center. And so our focus now lands us in Acts 21, where Paul stands unwavering amidst attempts to resist him and his message. He arrives in Jerusalem, a turning point marked by his arrest and his various trials. He's accused of breaking temple customs, and Paul faces violence at the hands of the religious leaders. They react predictably. Violence and coercion. And Paul becomes a pawn in their games. So turn to Acts 21, starting in verse 29. We read, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth, because of their uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. 
And so Paul has incited this riot of violence once again. Or the crowd has incited this violence. And he's getting beaten. And when the Romans see what's going on in their effort to control, they come and they take Paul and they imprison him and they arrest him. Continuing this cycle. And so they take Paul and they scapegoat him to try to bring peace into the city. And so from here, we move on to the various trials of Paul, where the Romans, they're trying to figure out what is actually going on here and what, it, what are the charges against Paul and what should they be. And so here through chapter 25, we witness Paul, as he goes from, from authority to authority to authority, standing with resilience and steadfastness, where he remains aligned with the way of Jesus and with his calling. In chapter 22, Paul speaks to the crowd and he shares his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, the first of two times he shares his encounter in our text today. At the very end of this telling, he reaffirms his call to the Gentile, which provokes them again to violence. Now, it's very likely that the crowds would have been with Paul up to this point. They may have been listening and it would have, it would have brought up thoughts around, oh, maybe he's a prophet and all of these things. It would have made them, them think that way until he gets to that end when he declares that the boxes are broken and the Gentiles are welcomed in and that he's called to them. And again, they're provoked to violence. From here, Paul is taken in front of the Sanhedrin, a religious ruling council of the Jewish community. And here, Paul remains true to his mission, defends his beliefs, and in doing so, he appeals to his belief in the resurrection of the dead. So reading in chapter 23, verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from the Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all of these things. And there was a great uproar. I have to wonder if Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees believed, and he specifically said he, his hope, he's on trial because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. And there it incited this violence. It goes on to say, there's a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Paul's appeal to the, to the hope and the resurrection exposed this fragility in their belief systems. It exposes the fragility of dogmatic certainty, of the need to be right, and not to listen to others. And it reveals also that they believe in a God who would condone their violence, just as Paul had believed in prior to meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. From here, Paul ends up in chapter 24 before the Roman governor, Felix, falsely accused once again. The previous encounters that we just went through involved religious leaders, and now it moves to an encounter with political leaders. And Paul continues to remain steadfast and committed to his message. 
Felix kept Paul for two years, meeting with him frequently, hoping that Paul would bribe him. Eventually, he kept him so long that Felix was succeeded by Festus. And they still don't know what Paul did wrong, but they're keeping him for peace. They're keeping him to please the Jewish people and so that there isn't chaos in Jerusalem. And then the Jewish leaders come to Festus and they want Paul sent to Jerusalem because they're hoping that they can ambush him and kill him on their way, on his way to Jerusalem. However, Paul appeals to Caesar and so Festus agrees. We saw just a moment ago how at the end of, of uh, that, the last section that we read, Jesus appears to Paul and encourages him, tells him to take courage, and then says he's going to see him through his journey to Rome. So Paul knows that he's going to get to Rome. He just doesn't know how he's going to get there. So he takes the chance and he tries and he appeals to Caesar and it gets him on the journey to Rome. And so at every point from, Acts, from the beginning of Acts 21 when Paul is arrested, uh, his journey is met with violence, provoked because of his commitment to an alternative way. And Paul continues not to give in to this way of coercion and violence. So what was it that gave Paul this resolve? What was it that allowed him to be faithful throughout these encounters of being run out of cities, of being beaten, of being arrested, and being placed on trial unfairly? What did he know about God that allowed him to remain nonviolent and faithful in his resistance and committed to an alternative way of Jesus? Chapter 26, we're rereading, starting in verse 9, where Paul stands before the king and he's telling his story. Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. With authority received from the chief priests, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. When at midday along the road, Your Excellency, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goats. I asked, who are you, Lord? The Lord answered, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul, once again, he recounts of his encounter with Jesus. This is his very basis for his mission and why he's able to stand so steadfast in, this, in the face of uh, opposition. The revelation of God through Jesus completely turns Paul's world upside down. It completely shifts his understanding of what God was like as he turns from violence to surrender. It was on the Damascus road that Paul's boxes of what was possible and who was to be included is completely blown up. 
It is here that the undoing of Paul's opposition and violence rooted in his dogmatic certitude happens. It is here that Paul learned that God's love has no boundaries, that God pursues all people, that God identifies with the persecuted and the oppressed, that God welcomes all people, including the oppressor, being Paul. It was here that Paul realized that God's way is not one of coercion and violence, but one of self-giving love. Paul's entire life was reframed in this moment and his purpose redirected to proclamation of the inclusive love of God revealed in Jesus. On that Damascus road, the light of God dispelled the darkness of hatred, fear, and prejudice within Paul that led Paul to violence. The very darkness that drew Paul's oppressors in and led him to standing there before the king. It was here on the Damascus road that Paul discovered what God is actually like. Paul's life presents an alternative way to one of coercion and violence and power over others because of the God he met through Jesus. From a zealous persecutor of the way to a fervent follower of it. And this continues to play out in chapter 27 when Paul is shipwrecked. Paul chose love and encouragement and hope, and he gave hope to the ship's crew breaking bread and sharing a meal with them. And so this morning, we've seen Paul endure persecution, imprisonment, and shipwreck. And in all of this, Paul demonstrates the resilience of a heart captive and compelled by love. Paul embodies the alternative way of God, a way that overcomes powers of dominance and violence and draws all of humanity back to God's intention. And so while Philip Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment and countless other examples throughout history and in our current context uncover a disconcerting ease with which authority can and does quickly deteriorate into coercive violence, the scriptures offer an alternative way that reimagines power marked with peace and forgiveness. Throughout our lives, each and every day, we may find ourselves at a fork in the road with two paths forward, with two ways forward. One way is a power of self-giving love, and the other is a power that is coercive and violent. One being a power with, and the other being a power over. At its core, the way of Jesus offers a path of liberation, justice, and unyielding love. A way of life where the oppressed find refuge, where the marginalized are uplifted, and where the chains of injustice are shattered. This way, this path, ushers us into a story of transformation and growth towards true life. The other way, however, is marked with coercion and violence and seeks dominion over. It perpetuates inequality, division, and, st and it stifles the image of God within all people. It entices us with fleeting promises of power, wealth, and conformity, and accumulation of wealth and uh, the accumulation of property, but ultimately it leaves us as captives bound by systems that thrive on the suffering and exploitation of others and creation. Choosing the way of Jesus requires courage. It demands that we step away from the promises of the world and embrace the message of liberation embodied by Jesus. It brings us into God to be partakers of his nature. It invites us to partner in the recreation of a more humane world. Let us, like Paul, stand in opposition to the ways of power that dominate. And let us mirror Paul's determination to stand for love. 
being true to the mission and the calling that he's placed upon our lives. The way forward is found in the teachings of Jesus as a community. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To care for the least among us. To stand against the systems that exploit people and creation. And ultimately, what gave Paul the strength to do all of this and to stay strong was his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. He writes in Colossians to remember what it was like at first, to go back to the beginning. And Paul, for the second time in these six chapters, told of this story of his encounter. It is only with a vision of Jesus that we'll be able to resist the lure of coercive power. We must invite Jesus in to reflect on our values and our desires and to check if the systems that we're in to check in the violent systems that we may be complicit in. We must invite Jesus into our present moment and ask him to reveal any external pressures or any illusions of power that may be influencing our decisions away from him. We must invite Jesus into the vulnerability of authentic community where everything is on the table. We must invite Jesus in and ask him to help us to understand the perspectives and experiences of others. We must invite Jesus in to empower us to approach every situation with compassion and love. We must invite Jesus in. By centering Jesus and pursuing wholeness individually and as a community, we can rise above the constraints of the world and its coercion and embody the inviting, welcoming, and self giving love of Jesus. I just invite you to stand as we close this morning. So Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your path that you've called us towards. We thank you that even when we're on the other path, you pursue us and you reveal yourself to us. So we just welcome you into our hearts, into our lives this morning, into our days, that you would expose ways, the ways in which we're living, that get in the way of us knowing how good you are and how loved we are by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you go today, may you find yourself loved, May you behold love and may you become more like love as found in Jesus. Uh, there will be a prayer team up here if you would like prayer as well as uh, you're welcome to join us outside for the potluck this afternoon. Uh, thank you. Have a great afternoon.